Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. How many people here are doctors? Besides Ben. <laughs> okay, so uh, no one. All right. Well, let's say um, I decide that I have a big chicken sandwich over there. And uh, before I walk up uh, to the podium here, I take a big bite of it. And then what I do is uh, I'm walking up, and I know I've got to get ready to speak, so I decide to swallow and I haven't finished chewing. Now, this wouldn't be unusual. This happens to be a, an area that I'm weak in. But the idea is, um, I would probably walk up, and just as I go to utter my words, I would realize I start to choke. Okay? Um, now, so as soon as that happens, immediately people get embarrassed. That's the first normal reaction. And it probably would be one of those things where I kind of just, you know, try to clear my voice and do something different. Um, But I would try to pretend I'm okay, but soon I would realize that I'm in trouble. I'd probably grab my throat, um, which is the universal sign for choking. Um, Embarrassment would now turn into fear. And I would probably start to walk off, probably to one of these doors. Just so you know, uh, if somebody's choking, always follow them. Never let them walk off, because if they do, they'll probably find a a private room or a bathroom, and they'll go in there, and then they'll pass out and die. So we don't want that. So what would you do? We already know there's no doctors in the house. And if Giselle or Matt were here, they don't count. They're not part of my message tonight. But what would you do? How many of you probably know a little bit about the Heimlich Maneuver? Okay, So you may not have been trained in it officially, but maybe you saw something on a TV show. All right, Maybe you, you saw a video, a YouTube video, on how it works. Maybe you read an article on it, or even maybe you heard a friend talk about it. Right. So you've got a little bit of knowledge, but hopefully you would be willing to help me. And with that little knowledge you know, you need to use, you know, you would know that you need to use whatever air that I have trapped in my lungs to sort of dislodge the object that's caught in my throat. Um, I would imagine that you would come up, might be Andy, then you would gently walk behind me, put his arms around my waist, make a fist, put it about two fingers above my belly button, and then he would probably start thrusting inward and upward, you know, until he saw that piece of chicken fly out. (laughs) But uh, I don't know about you, but I would be very, very grateful uh, that not only did you have that little bit of knowledge, 
but that you used it to help me. You see, you saved my life. Now as Christians, we all vary in our biblical knowledge. But what do we do with it? That's what's really going to count. Because the way I see it, there's a world of choking people out there that need to be saved. And depending on what knowledge you share with them, it may help them know how to have a better life. But I'm pretty sure what we really need to do is help them to know how to die better. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this time that we can share together. Lord, I just, uh, I just want to thank you that we can worship you, Lord, and that we can learn more of your truth. I ask that your spirit would come upon us now to open our hearts and our minds so that we might be changed and better equipped to advance your kingdom on earth. Spirit, as I talk, may the words that come out of my mouth be yours. I ask this in Jesus Christ. Amen. It was a cold, clear morning 81 years ago, on February 3, 1943, when tragedy struck the U.S. Army transport to Dorchester. It was making its way in a convoy from the United States to an Army command base in southern Greenland. She was carrying more than 900 men, but the Dorchester never delivered them to their destination. There was a, a German U-boat that fired and struck her with a torpedo, and she sank within 20 minutes. On board, as panic set in, most were jarred from their sleep by the impact of the torpedo where both sailor and soldier found themselves in chaos, trying to make sense of what was happening. All the while knowing that the depth, excuse me, that death was present upon the sinking Dorchester. Depending on where they were on the ship, they would have either had a strong smell of smoke, maybe they were experiencing the heat of the fire, Maybe they are experiencing the coldness of the Atlantic creeping up their leg. There would have been flashing emergency lights, the sounds of alarms. People would have been running and bumping into each other. The call to abandon ship. No doubt few knew what to do or had time to figure it out. Sensory overload was no doubt running rampant as the stimulus triggered a cascade of hormones throughout their bodies by the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system that the brain uses. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor Joe. <laughs> uh, now, when that happens, their ears would have started to ring. That's to sort of block out all other distraction. Their, their vision 
would become narrow. Their heart rate would rapidly increase and their breathing would become shallow. Their mouths would become dry, just like mine is now. But all non-critical functions of the human body are going to become secondary operations. This is known as the fight-or-flight reaction, which would have caused them to either freeze in place, and that's to evaluate whatever situation is. They would have had the other is fight, which they would have wound up looking at whatever is in front of them to fight to get to away from that danger. And then the other would be to flee or flight. And that is uh, to get out of danger and get to a, a, sa- a place of safety. But individually, how these sailors and soldiers reacted to this biological response would have determined their success and failure in survival. However, thank God, not everything in life is left up to individual response. Our God is awesome. He sees the beginning from the end, and he often puts people in our lives to point us to safety. On board the Dorchester were four chaplains, a Methodist minister, the Reverend George L. Fox, a rabbi, Alexander D. Good, a Catholic priest, the Reverend John P. Washington, and the Reverend Clark B. Poland. He was a Reformed minister, excuse me, he was a Reformed Church of America minister. Now, survivors on the Dorchester witnessed and recorded that the chaplains guided men in the darkened ship corridors. They provided the confused and the bewildered a chance of survival. Also, there were several on who benefited personally. I got one. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, sorry, I just want to see where I left off. Uh, also, there were um, several who benefited and testified to the chaplains as they gave up their own personal life vest so that others uh, could survive and that they didn't, the ones that didn't have any. After helping as many men as possible, the four men were seen linking arms on top of the ship, singing and praying as the Dorchester disappeared under the dark waters of the Atlantic. And those four chaplains were counted among the 700 who were lost. Now there's part of this story, which was what prompted me to use it. It's part of the story that had been told that while one of the chaplains was trying to give his own life vest to another sailor, the sailor was resisting. He said, no, keep it for yourself, save yourself. And he was refusing to accept it. But the chaplain was insistent. And the chaplain was standing with the other chaplains there. And he responded to the sailor that he should take the vest. And he insured him, saying, we 
know how to die better. If you consider that, the imagery, the sailor almost refused the very thing that would save his life. A gift from one willing to give up their own life so that another may live. Sounds familiar. Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our great example. But I wonder, when you think of those men, what prayer was on their lips? What scripture was on their minds? These chaplains knew that they were about to enter eternity in a matter of moments. What promises were on their lips? Was it John 15, 13? It says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's own life for his friends? Or maybe was it John 10, 11, where it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now they were pastors, they were ministers, they had a flock. Or even better, was it Deuteronomy 31, 6, where it says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, I'm not sure about you guys, but whenever I'm focused on a particular scripture that I want to act on, there's frequently a small voice, a doubt a fear that enters to discourage me. It causes me to question my motives, to stop me from acting. This is spiritual warfare. And whether it be Satan himself or my weak flesh, the powers of hell want me to, they want to render me feckless. For the chaplains, I can only imagine the voices of discouragement would be, this scripture isn't about you, it's about Christ. Or maybe they heard, they're not your friends. How about the doubt of their motives? You're seeking to glorify yourself. No one will know the truth about what you're doing. Or how about the fear that's going to stop them from acting? Probably would have been a little louder voice. You're going to die. You'll never see your family again. You know, I heard uh, Max Lucado once explain that how a person acts at the lowest point in their life is to see a person's truest view of God. 
Well, I can only assume that when a person is facing death, especially the death as a result of somebody else's actions, you can consider that a lowest point in their life. God has given us his word, the Bible, which some say contain 7,000 promises for those that belong to God and some for those that don't. Some are positive and some are negative. So what is a promise? Simply put, it's a declaration or an assurance that something will or will not be done by another. So tonight I was hoping to go through all 7,000 of these promises. Just kidding. <laughs> I want to pick out about 16 of them, if that's okay with you guys. Um, but uh, the 16 that kind of sort of take us through life, you know, and, and as we look at you know, our interaction with God. Number one promise of God is, is uh, how to find God. And in Deuteronomy 4.29, it says, But from there you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart and all of your soul. Number two would be a promise that we already desperately are searching for, and that's going to be his mercy. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Number three is a promise that both is, excuse me, that's both positive and negative. He knows that we are not perfect, but God is a respecter of person. He makes his promise clear. There are choices, there are benefits of obeying him and, and uh, belonging to him, as well as consequences for uh, disobedience and rejecting it. So Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 18 says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. That's tough. Number four is promise blessing after we rebel against him and then when we return. So Second Chronicles, a lot of people love this one, 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Number five, this promise of blessing. 
of simple faith and obedience. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Number six is promise of salvation to all who believe and confess the name of Jesus. Romans 10, 9, 10. And if you're in my Sunday school classes, I love teaching this one as 10 spelled T-E-N, 9, and I hit it right with the N, and then 10 again. We say T-N-T. It's explosive. It's powerful. But it tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confess, confession is made unto salvation. Number seven promises that he is in control even though we don't see it or feel it. I'm sure many of you experience that. Romans 8.28 tells us that, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And then Romans 8.31, which is powerful, I love it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Number eight, the promise of comfort when we are going through trials. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Number nine, promise of a new life in Christ. Salvation from the life of hopelessness and despair. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Number 10, promise to the future that has unimaginably riches that can't be taken away. That's 1 Peter 1.4. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, is reserved in heaven for you. I like that because the stock market's not really doing good. Number 11. Promises not to leave us unfinished. Without purpose, he is faithful to complete us. You complete what you started. And Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
And then number 12 is a promise to take care of us, take care of our needs, and to show us how to align with him. So in Philippians 4.19 it says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by, Jesus, or by Christ Jesus. And then Matthew 6.33 follows up with, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Rounding up here, but 13, promise of eternal life. John 4.14 but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But whatever that shall excuse me, but whatever that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And John 10:28 says, "And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch out of my hand, snatch them out of my hand." 14 is a promise that we will receive his power, and that's from Acts uh, 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and to all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Number 15 is a promise. As a believer, we will never be denied access to his throne. Praise God for this. Hebrews 14, or excuse me, 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain, obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And number 16, the last one. Promise, promises that we have, his promises. <laughs> excuse me, promises that all his promises have one thing in common that they, uh, they are yes in Jesus Christ. So 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God are in him, excuse me, uh, sorry about that. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Okay. So, some of these scriptures we knew, some of them may have heard for the first time, but some of us know portions of scripture that are helpful. Some of them can be life-changing. So as I wrap up here, my heart's heavy. I'm not blind and I see that this world is a sinking ship, torpedoed by the enemy, Satan. While my desire is to save the ship, and keep it afloat. My focus needs to be on helping save as many as on board as possible. I've been trying to hold my life together for a long time now. And since the death of my son four and a half years ago, every area of my life is being tested and torpedoed. And even though I feel like I'm sinking quickly, God is faithful. I can't save myself. It's only through Jesus Christ that I can continue to rise above what is trying to pull me down below the deep waters of despair and discouragement. 
just as Peter was sinking when he was walking on the water. There was only one hand that reached out to him after he cried out, Lord, save me. It was Jesus' hand. Now, I've experienced, and I'm sure you have as well, the promises of God that hold us up in times of trouble. Just like Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which is my life verse, says, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. See, that's our part, verse 6. Then there's God's part. And it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, Nobody's going to understand why you're walking through life better than they are. We'll guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Also, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's... Uh, that's pretty much where all of us stand. We live in a country where people think that they deserve and even demand an easy and prosperous life. This is so they can afford things to make them happy. After all, our founders, they put it in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The problem is nothing more, uh, the problem is happiness is nothing more than emotion. An emotion that is subject to a variety of fleeting factors that are found in this world. Americans seem to have an elevated sense of what will bring them happiness. A new outfit, a new, a new iPhone, a new car, a new home, maybe an exotic vacation, a better job, which typically means more money so that we can buy more happiness. But you can see the problem here. It's more. We always need more, and happiness needs to be fed continually, or we start to feel unhappy, empty, less fortunate, and sometimes a victim. At what cost do we pursue happiness? Has it, been, has it become more important than pursuing God's truth? Has it become more important than sharing his gospel? Why would we put so much energy into pursuing fleeting worldly happiness when God's joy is eternal and endless? Now, just going back to the Dorchester. 
in an article I read that gives a statement from First Sergeant Michael Warsh from that infamous morning. He describes how he nearly gave up hope as he floated helplessly in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. Warsh accepted his fate, fully aware that his life expectancy was maybe 15 to 20 minutes in those freezing waters, surrounded by hundreds of his equally doomed shipmates. The blinking red lights, he said, reminded him on their life preservers, it reminded him of Christmas. Other than, burning, other than the burning sensation in his throat of sw- from swallowing oil-fouled salt water and some minor pains from when the torpedo hit that he had received wounds from, he said that he mostly felt numb. And he resigned to losing consciousness and freezing to death shortly thereafter. His thoughts turned to courageous, excuse me, his thoughts turned to the courageous and selfless acts of the four army chaplains that he witnessed just before abandoning ship. These four chaplains, according to Warsh and other eyewitnesses, remained calm during the panic following the attack, first distributing life preservers and assisting others as they needed to abandon ship, then giving up their own life preservers, as noted before, and coming together and praying as the ship disappeared beneath the surface. This changed his mindset to live, to survive. As followers of Jesus Christ, how many of us are watching? I should say, how many are watching us and how we handle the torpedoes in life? How do we respond to the sinking ship? What promises of God have we memorized that allow us to be like, excuse me, to be like the army chaplains and ultimately Christ, who are able to save lives. We have much to do as the lives of those who know Jesus and those who don't are being targeted by the enemy. Again, are we like the army chaplains, remaining calm as this world continues to spin out of control? Are we using God's promises to provide hope to our brothers and sisters in Christ and salvation for those that are lost? Are we handling, excuse me, are we handing out uh, life preservers, God's word of salvation to those who are doomed to sink into the depths of the ocean of hell? Are we assisting others in abandoning the sinking ship called earthly desires? to a hope of eternal riches? Are we willing to give up our own life preservers, sacrifice our comfort, our protection, so that others may live? When I think of these chaplains, I can't tell you their positions in Christ, but I can tell you that they acted Christ-like. sacrificing themselves so that others may live. 1 Peter 1.15, we are told, be holy as he is holy. Are we being used by God as vessels of hope, that, that hold hope, joy, peace,
peace, love. We are to be Christ-like. As true Christians, there is comfort in the face of death. I've seen it. Knowing the truth of the life that comes helps us understand that it's a door. It doesn't matter whether it's old age or cancer, an accident, a senseless crime. We all have torpedoes heading towards whatever is keeping us afloat on this top of this thing called life. As the world becomes more troubled and love grows cold, we are the ones that have the answers. We are the ones that know how to die better than those without Christ. Let's pray. Father, whether we know it or not, we all have torpedoes heading in our direction with the intent to wound and or destroy us. Lord, you know me, and you know all that are here and all that are listening. You know that we are facing, you know what we are facing, and what we've already been through and have overcome. So please, Lord, draw near to us right now. Show us glimpses of your faithfulness in this season. Show us, Lord, how to overcome our fears so that we can shine your truth into the darkness. Forgive us when we resist or fight against your will. Restore our hope, our joy. Teach us how to place our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.